Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. My name's Tom Clark, and this week I'll be speaking to the roaming writer Wendell Stevenson about the question of recycling. We're all making more efforts to be sustainable these days, but is all our careful divvying up of rubbish into different bins actually doing any good? And you see just how much trash, shredded, crumpled, slimy, grimy there is. First, though, I'm joined here in the studio by Prospects Art and Books editor Samir Rahim and our political correspondent Alex Dean to discuss the latest in culture and politics. Alex, uh, it's crunch time in the Commons again, uh, but as we approach this particular crunch, I wonder if you've got any thoughts on who looks to be, as it were, having a good and who's having a bad Brexit war. Yeah, I think Brexit is throwing the country into crisis and and, uh, that's quite worrying, but a crisis gives certain political figures the chance to come to the fore and they can rise to the moment. Uh, And we've seen some politicians, Boris, I think, would be the most extreme example, who have kind of failed to to live up to the hype, maybe, and actually their stock has diminished. And then we've seen others who uh, actually have undergone either kind of a surge to the fore. Nick Bowles would be an example of that with his Norway for now or Norway plus plan. And that's been really good to see simply because he's looking at the issues and actually putting forward concrete solutions. So that alone has kind of taken him to the fore. And then we've also seen some rehabilitation of old figures who previously maybe their reputations weren't so good. So John Major, Samir, you and I were talking about him. And he's undergone something of a rehabilitation now amongst people even who disagreed with everything he previously stood for. Yeah, no, when I was growing up uh, in the 1990s, he was just the the vacillating, failing prime minister. And now he's the elder statesman of the Remain side, isn't he? So it's an interesting thing. And I think it's because Brexit kind of serves as the great leveller. It's such a big issue (laughs) that you can disagree with someone on almost everything and have disagreed with them passionately for years and then brexit is so important that if you align with them on that you kind of rehabilitate their reputation and decide that actually they're not so bad after all but um, we've got to be careful that we're not just bigging up people who we happen to agree with on the 
Brexit thing. Is there anyone on the Leave side that you think is having a, a good time of it, making a good name for themselves? So Nick Bowles is kind of on the Leave side, and he's he's passionately against a second referendum. He he thinks that we need to respect the result, and that uh, Norway, so a softer relationship, uh, is, is the way to go and and do that. But he's not actually a Remainer per se. I think Rhys Mogg is someone on the Leave side whose stock has gone up. Uh, you know, I he's someone who I disagree with quite profoundly on a lot of issues. Um, and, and but there are lots of levers who have been kind of exposed or whose reputations have diminished. Reese Mogg seems to be growing only more powerful and uh, seems to have grown in stature throughout the process. Has he got more power as a sort of figure outside Parliament, though, than he does inside? Because they did sort of, his ERG group did, I mean, they eventually managed to get the letters together, but then that coup was a bit um, chicken coup as it were. So that's that coup was a really interesting thing because <laughs> it was kind of orchestrated by Rhys Mogg and Steve Baker, who's almost his deputy leader of the ERG, another fierce Brexiteer. Um, and somehow Baker seems to have taken the fall. <laughs> so Baker's taken the reputational damage and Rhys Mogg seems to have come out relatively unscathed. So Steve Baker was previously viewed as being this uh, kind of super sharp political operator behind the scenes who could you know get the letters if he wanted them in and and trigger this confidence vote and and it was just a matter of when not if that didn't happen reese mogg and baker came out and kind of called the cameras in and said they had the letters they both turned out wrong but reese mogg seems to have got off scot-free and it's baker who's taken the reputational damage well it's the butler who uh takes the blame as always and the lord of the manor who gets away with the gets away with i mean the other winner some people are saying in this situation could be the House of Commons as a whole. We know that John Burko, who was always a bit Marmite, you liked him or you hated him, is now even more Marmite because people who uh, were wishing Theresa May well were upset with the way he handled some of the procedural stuff that's allowed the MPs to be back in charge. But it is beginning to look like for more than, you know, 100 years or more, we could be in a situation where... MPs really have, in the slogan, taken back control. Yeah, it's fascinating that there's this guerrilla parliamentary kind of constitutional war uh, that's being waged with the most technical arcane procedures you can imagine uh, in the rule book but it's fascinating to watch how it's playing out one thing i would add is that there's a lot of outrage i think uh from politicians at the way burko's handled the last days and weeks and and they view him as riding roughshod over constitutional precedent whereas previously they've been completely silent or even flouted (laughs) constitutional precedent themselves i mean this government was held in contempt of parliament so i just think we need to not be selective we need to pick pick a side and stick to it whether we agree with the the politics uh, that are live at the time or not uh so from larger than life characters make or break events and power struggles we're going to samir shakespeare absolutely and simon russell beale who i was lucky enough to see performing richard ii at the almeida on friday and although the production didn't really do him any favors he's got this amazing ability to bring a kind of thoughtfulness and elicit sympathy from a king who makes a lot of political mistakes. I couldn't help being reminded of his performance as King Lear two or three years ago uh, at the National Theatre, which uh, also has an opening scene in which a king makes a terrible mistake where he divides his kingdom into three and uh, gives up his power but retains his title and things go terribly wrong um, from then. Although normally you'd expect to be playing Leah later in life rather than Richard II who comes into the throne quite young. Yes, I mean, he's always been... An odd one uh, in terms of his age and physicality. I mean, he's famously sort of quite quite hefty. And when he played Hamlet in 1999, people thought of uh, Hamlet as sort of willowy John Gielgud type character. But 
um, he did it in a completely different way. He just made made it his own. I and mean, he played Ariel, of course, you know, the sort of uh, when he was quite young as well um, in The Tempest. With Leah, I think he was 45 or something like that when he performed, or nearly 50 maybe, and Leah in the play is meant to be 80. They just conveniently cut the line which says that he's 80 and they just tried to play it that way. Interesting, in Shakespeare's own time, Richard Burbage, the, the lead actor who played Lear, was 38. So um, he he brought a sort of great physicality, um, both to Richard II and also to uh, to Lear. You know, he shaved his head, a bit of a sort of brutal, brutish man, and he, he managed to um, solve the problem of what happens to Lear's fool by murdering him. But what what's so great, why he's so good at playing villains and villainous character is because he manages to bring a very human vulnerability to everything he plays. I, I always feel like it's quite interesting to compare him to Mark Rylance, who is another great Shakespearean actor, leader of the Globe for many years, and um, was in Wolf Hall, of course. You know, Rylance is all sort of deliberate stuttering and starry-eyed whimsicality. Um, his Richard II at the Globe a few years ago um, captured the very sort of actorly or lovey nature of the king. It was almost like he was sort of doing his final performance on stage uh, before he uh, was forced to give up. But Russell Beale is much less theatrical in, in that sense. He's more centred, more concentrated on the rhythms of the text. Shakespeare had a very good grasp of political power and how it worked. Um, at the time, this play was very controversial because there is a deposition scene, a scene in which a king is forced to give up power and hand it over to another king. And uh, at the time, actually, it was so controversial, it wasn't, the deposition scene wasn't performed. Um, I don't think in Shakespeare's lifetime, or certainly at one point it, was, um, it wasn't performed. Of course, Queen Elizabeth was on the throne coming towards the end of her reign. He's very good at looking at political power because he's good at looking at power between people and individuals. Uh, he maps family relations brilliantly. So in King Lear, it's to do with the relationship between him and his three daughters, but then it's also to do with the relationship between Lear and the whole kingdom. But yeah, Russell Beale, I just think he's he's a brilliant actor. He's very good at villains and he hasn't done much TV or film work, which is quite interesting. And I think he almost prefers being, being in the theatre. He's done two very fine performances, though. Last year he was in The Death of Stalin as Berrier, another sort of nasty character who comes to a sticky end, evil police chief. Um, and he was Widmerpool, of course, in the Channel 4 adaptation of A Dance to the Music of Time. I always wondered whether he might play a Bond villain with Sam Mendes, his old friend. Uh, I think that'll be a perfect role for him. Thank you both. Um, now on to the main event. This week we're talking to Wendell Stevenson about a curious crisis that's unfolding in our household recycling sacks. So, Wendell, um, the piece starts with uh, Open House Day, which I think of as being quite a National Trust type of a affair of nice garden squares and so on being open in London. But you used it to go to Viola's Recycling Centre off the old Kent Road. Which turned out to be more of a popular option than I would have thought. Um, I mean, you expect everybody to be queuing up for Downing Street or somebody's sort of, you know, posh man mansion in the in the country but there was a two and a half hour wait in the pouring rain through the afternoon to have a tour of the recycling centre it was sort of it was heartening and peculiar at the same time <laughs> and uh, one great thing in the in the piece that comes through is you talk about all these arguments that I'm sure lots of us have had um, with family and friends about what to stick in what 
been and you know the kind of interesting borderline cases like a pizza box with a bit of grease on it or a carton with a film that you can't quite tear off as you stood there amongst all that whizzing machinery and the conveyor belts that you talk about did you come away feeling much more confident that you knew when or where you'd be putting things in future i don't know whether i got more confident about about being able to tell one particular piece of plastic from another and which um, kind of polymer, whether it be film or container or lid or wrap, might be different from another or fall into a different category. What did impress me was the kind of physicality of it because you sort of imagine when you throw something away that it, well, it, it goes into a sort of clean receptacle, doesn't it? It goes into a, into a black bag and the black bag is taken away in a nice sort of semi-hermetically sealed garbage bag and you imagine this thing being technical and organized and mechanized and actually you've got you know suddenly these things are unpacked in the resorting center and you see just how much trash shredded crumpled slimy grimy there is and how the physicality of that and the specifics of that how difficult it is to sort and again I imagined it to be more technical and apparently more technological and apparently there are um, technologies coming and barcoding and various um, optical recognition systems that might be able to sort this more effectively but at the moment it's really mostly in terms of size shaking grinding gyrating and whether they fall through a certain hole or aperture or, or at one point I remember be, you know being somewhat mesmerized by a machine with blunt blades that was tossing garbage um, over the top of it in order that small um, heavy items that were sort of metal and glass could fall through mm. but it got snagged all the time if there was a bit of um, fabric or a big bit of um, plastic film and they'd have to stop it I mean I love the uh, the detail you had on some of these things you think might be urban myths so oh, don't put cut shredded paper in or glass that's smaller than this size and it goes back to this business of if you shake it around then it will it or won't it drop through well there's this ex i know i know there was this extraordinary thing just as you i mean everybody's very confused about what you can put in your bin at the recycling bin in part because it you know as i describe in the article it's different where you are it's different in different boroughs and different muni municipalities and they have different rules so it's confusing because there isn't one for everybody and there isn't one set of guidelines and they change but in addition you realize that it's very complex when all the questions at the end of this tour were literally, can I put this? Can I put that? What about this? What about that? One of them was, what about shredded paper? And the guy said, well, you, you can't put um, laser cut sh shredded paper through the recycling machines because it's cut into very small confetti pieces that fall through. But you can put the strip shredded paper in because it tends to wad up and therefore go through the machine and get collected up with the other paper i mean it's it's fairly granular very very granular stuff but as you say there's also a big picture thing which is you get there and you think christ there's a lot of rubbish in the world um something people are always aware of after christmas and something that's been true you know for at least a generation and yet something's changed, doesn't it? People are talking about this more as well as recycling more than 10 years ago. They're talking even more than two years ago about plastic. Well, you realise standing in the recycling, um, the sort of sorting shed, enormous cavernous warehouse thing, that this is really the tip of the iceberg, the plastic berg, the trash berg. 
um, that the, what you're looking at really is the consumer end. And then what happens after it's sorted, what happens uh, after these bales of wadded up, crushed up cans or paper or card or different polymer and plastics, where they go, how they're sold on, how they're disposed of, whether they're exported, that is a, a, is a big iceberg of complexity, confusion, obscurity, and in some cases, sort of fraudulent activity below the surface. Yes, so um, we're all keener to recycle more. There are, or are for the moment, EU targets. Um, and yet, one thing you talk about is how, at least until extremely recently, loads of this stuff was being put, so to speak, on the slow boat to China. It was literally being put on the slow boat to China, not so to speak. Um, it was, uh, China was importing most of our, apparently, I put it in inverted commas, air quotes, recyclable product. Um, the difficulty was that because it was sort of out of sight, out of mind, I think, to a certain extent, a lot of what was being put on these, um, put on the boats, was the ships, was um, what they call contaminated. So it, w it either wasn't enough of, enough of only tin or only a certain kind of plastic or only a certain kind of card, you know, the sorted recyclable. And those sorted things, they might be what recycled and dealt with fully in the UK? Well, when they're sent to China, you assume, although again, one of the problems is the traceability and accountability of what really happens to it, right? When it's being sent to mostly Asia as, as it was being. Um, you don't really know exactly what's happening to it. Um, but the idea is that it's recycled somewhere else. But the contamination was partly that you get different kinds of materials mixed up, which creates a problem, but also that you would get, and this is back to your greasy pizza box, you get food items and biological and organic waste mixed up in these containers, which of course, two or three or four months later has not only sort of contaminated, but then rotted essentially the whole consignment. So China um, turning it, you know, saying we're not going to take any more UK recyclable waste was partly saying, well, you know, it's not viable. It's just waste. It's not recyclable. So in this whole area, exporting is just one of the things where you've got something that sounds green and ends up maybe not being so green. But there are many others, aren't there? You talk about burning this stuff, which might be sold for green electricity. Well, that's you what they're increasingly doing. I mean, there is, there is decreasingly a market for British recyclables. Um, they tried to send it to also, after the China ban, they tried to send it to other Asian countries, several of which sort of turned their noses up. They tried to send it to Poland, to Turkey, to other places, some of which have curtailed um, their, their importing of it also. Um, and there are increasingly increasing reports that under the radar, um, the UK is burning more and more of its waste, uh, whether it's recyclable, contaminated, recycled, you know, whatever category that is. And I think I read recently in the last week even that they're planning more incinerators. Now, some might say that that's not bad. You can recapture. It's not terrible. You, you know, think less coal or something. Exactly. You can recapture a certain amount of energy from it. And in fact, when I talk to the guys at Veolia, they use part of, um, they do do energy recapture, as they nicely call it, a sort of semi-euphemistic term for burning garbage, to power, to heat houses in Southwark, for example. But it's not as efficient to burn garbage as it is to burn fuel or something else. And certainly when you come to plastics, it's difficult because although you can technically burn plastics you need higher grade incinerators to do so uh, very few of which there are in the UK there are some on the continent but not here 
And then when you dig down a little bit deeper, and this is kind of the problem with recycling general, generally, is that every time you think you might have found a solution, it creates another problem. And you talk, don't you, about the uh, the new kind of plant-based plastics? The, the, there are plant-based plastics, um, but the, the problem is you need plants to make them. And again, um, they're supposed to be compostable, and they are, but you need a high temperature i think or high energy co special composter to do it you can't chuck it at your on your compost in the back of your garden so again it engen you know a solution engenders another problem it's another kind of hurdle and then in terms of the policy response you talk there's this kind of baffling ecology of hidden taxes on on companies i mean the one thing that people probably have heard of is the landfill levy and so there's this idea of don't bury stuff in britain but that's about as far as it gets really well there are a couple of sort of things to separate out one is the kind of you the EU, you know, overall, I wouldn't call it legislation, but the, the programs and the targets that they've instituted, which I guess we will not be necessarily obliged to follow anymore. But that was uh, the EU directives in reducing landfill have gotten be, uh, British recycling up to 44%, much more in line with European levels. And we're, you know, closing the gap on countries like, I think, the Netherlands and obviously Scandi and Germany that are better at this kind of stuff than we have been historically. Um, and landfill, um, you know, obviously we're running out of space. It creates methane and has all sorts of other ecological issues is a problem um, but what to do with it if you can't export the problem is now the kind of the the cliff face <laughs> i think um you know is the sharp end of the problem the british um, government is beginning to deal with but the recent white paper at the end of the last year was seemed to be more about and this was michael gove's paper. yeah everybody was while i was reporting the story everybody was hopeful that this was going to address some of the major issues that are I the problems and issues um in the british recycling market as it is now and it did but they are suggestions points for future consultation and it's not clear when uh, they're going to be implemented and how joined up uh, the implementation will be to really wrestle with and institute a kind of national policy that can that can you know get Britain through this. As you talk about this kind of I want to say squeezing the balloon but squeezing the plastic bag sort of problem. I mean, the one thing that kind of comes out and you have some environmentalists saying it is it would really be better if we could find ways of either reusing things or just using less of things that would be more efficient than um, even much more efficient recycling there are lots of not only say little things but are lots of different things that can help and reducing packaging is one of them but at the same time you can't eliminate packaging packaging is there for a reason and if you eliminated packaging in a lot of food for example that people roll their eyes about and think it's very easy to sell you know, loose vegetable, whatever, you also create food waste because it's protecting the food. Better to think about how to deal with that than just to have a sort of rather reductionist turn back the clock idea that we're all going to go back to sort of string bags and, you know, loose potatoes. Um, and yet, I mean, uh, the things that post the sort of David Attenborough programme wasn't there where this became a huge issue. We saw the albatross or whatever it was well the optics are just extraordinary i mean they're terrifying they're awful it's global it's enormous and it does what those programs do what it has done is generate a huge amount of consumer demand so for the first time increasingly you are getting supermarkets and manufacturers who want to grapple with this i have to say after reading your thing you know uh, the um Ocado come round and uh, they take away and you dutifully put out the any plastic bags you've got not only Ocado plastic bags 
they take them away and do something with them. You don't know what. And then you suddenly thought, oh, I've bought three pairs here. And it comes in a big flat plastic kind of crate underneath with a wrap and then another wrap around it. And that must weigh a lot more than the bags I'm giving back. And um, I feel a bit powerless <laughs> in the face of that. But but you end on a relatively optimistic note. You say that the decisions we're making, you think, in the end might be able to make things better. I do. I, what's interesting um, about this is how... And, I, and I've seen this in other stories I've written about food and so forth, is that consumers and their drive for uh, greater ethics in their food supply and their shopping um, and get greater ethical and environmental responsibility are increasingly pushing supermarkets to at least pay lip service. So even though sometimes it seems like banning straws or the single plastic bag is not really, you know, is not really going to solve the whole problem, it does put pressure on the retailers and and the manufacturers to begin to think in a joined up way, and they are beginning to come together. Um, and I think there's a thing called the Plastics Pact, for example, to try and create industry standards. Brilliant. So we can end on that a note of less than total despair. Thanks very much, Wendell. Wendell Stevenson there. And that's all for this time. Thank you very much for listening to Wendell with me, Tom Clark, as well as my colleagues Alex Dean and Samir Rahim, who you heard from earlier in the podcast here in the heart of Westminster. If you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and review on iTunes or anywhere else. It does really help. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.